are the most successful change leaders of today doing that makes them stand out? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is this week's host. Good morning, and thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, We're going to be talking today about preparing for a world that doesn't yet exist, but is coming our way. Most leaders say that they're prepared for the future, yet many organizations and communities are doing things in the same old way they've been doing for decades. My guest today, Neil Richardson, is going to help us um, look at where we are, actually, as a society, as as a world, and help us get our heads around, for lack of a better phrase, uh, how to understand this orientation and begin to think and do differently. I'd like to welcome you this morning, Neil. Good morning. Well, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, I'm delighted that you're here. And just for those listening, I want to give a little bit of your background. I know that you're the founder of Emergent Action, which is a strategist, you're a public servant and a strategist who's been working on smart government advocacy and integral thinking, two you know, different but very related principles. You've recently written Preparing for a World That Doesn't Exist Yet, and I know you co-authored that with Rick Smyre, and now uh, are involved in all kinds of uh, work helping people to rethink the future and to understand how to navigate the complexity that we're all experiencing but perhaps not making sense of. I know you've directed public policy and public policy development for elected officials in the District of Columbia and have been a policy advisor for three mayors. Um, You currently are the Director of Advancement Partnerships and Continuing Ed at the University of District of Columbia. And I know you're not only thinking about these things but are immersed in helping positive change happen. And I want to ask you, Neil, since I've just given such a summary, if you wouldn't mind just giving our listeners a sense of um, how you came to do the work that you do. And if you if you could describe it in your own words, tell us more about you. Well, it's, well, it's, really, it's, interesting. it's really interesting uh, how I came into the work because I came into this kind of work through t- two different channels. Uh, as a as a young person uh, and, and, a, and a leader, I was I was playing soccer. And uh, and then on the other track, I was actually preparing myself, going through college and getting a master's degree at, at Georgetown. And the two worlds met up, and I was in a real great tension about what to do with, with my own future, uh, whether to try to play professional soccer or uh, go down the, the route making you know a really huge impact in the world. And uh, the decision, quite frankly, was made for me because I was uh, in a training session for soccer and I broke my leg. And so as I was sitting there on the field, I all of a sudden it realized it came to real, my realization that number one, I didn't, I couldn't control every aspect of my life and my world, and number two, this was an opportunity to to really focus um, on my future. And uh, I, was in, I was already 30 years old. My playing days, quite frankly, were mostly behind me anyhow. Uh, but it was crystal clear as we're waiting for the ambulance, the ambulance to come and take me away um, that this is the kind of work that I wanted to do. But the, what, I, what prepared me for public service and, 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 and public leadership uh, was being part of a team. 
and particularly soccer, like basketball, and like a couple of, like other sports, it's a game of networks uh, where every time someone's got a ball, uh, the whole position of the field changes. Everyone adapts uh, to each changing movement. And once I got into public leadership, I felt like I was in a world where I could see networks everywhere. Everywhere I looked, I saw relationships happening. And quite frankly, not all of my colleagues were in that same place. And so um, it was uh, at that point, you know, this is 20, 25 years ago, I started thinking, I've got a uh, I want to talk about maybe some of my own ideas about how to do government, but quite frankly, they were rejected a lot. Uh, they were probably a little bit too far ahead of the time. Um, I think some people thought that they were goofy, um, that they, uh, uh, you know, weren't, weren't uh, you know, what a traditional leader would do. And uh, so I kind of had to kind of go underground on the ideas and employ what I called using them as a Trojan horse, uh, where I would basically get into the project and start using these ideas and started creating relationships so that my colleagues began to see that we're actually um, all, we're not in silos, particularly you know back then, 20 years ago, most of uh, district government that I was serving in was based in a series of silos and hierarchies and. Um, I just decided to act different, and I stopped talking about it and started doing it. So that was a, that was kind of a that was a, a big shift, and that's how I got into this work. You know, it's 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 amazing. I mean, I know that the work you do is really about um, collaboration, helping people come together and work collaboratively and strategically, and on on some really tough and challenging problems. And as I have been reading and thinking about your book, Neil, it's. Um, the book that, for those of you who are listening, I just want to highly recommend, the book, again, is called Preparing for a World That Doesn't Exist Yet. And, of course, this has my attention because I do so much work on um, envisioning the future, and I think this uh, work of yours, Neil, really challenges some of my premises. So I want to take us right in there. Um, one of your opening premises is that we're in the early stages of an immense transformation and we're using out-of-date thinking to meet the challenges of the present and the future. Um, we're sort of rethinking the obvious as what you invite us to do, to, to, to recognize that our traditional way of thinking about how to solve our problems actually doesn't work in the modern moment particularly well. Um, could you comment for us a little bit about sort of the, what, what the traditional thinking is and why it doesn't seem to work now? Yeah, sure. Uh, first, I'll say that uh, you know the, I, the so my co-author Rick Smyer and I wrote the wrote the book, and his uh, Rick Smyer has been a fantastic colleague and mentor of mine for over twenty years, and um, we're part of a of an organization called Communities of the Future, which is sort of like an open source network of everybody that is about four hundred of us. We kind of put our we offer up our brains into. Uh, kind of a, a, our own intellectual community, and we share ideas. And so the book represents the ideas that came out of certainly, you know, me and Rick uh, using a lot of the ideas, but there's been, you know, a couple hundred others who have been evolving these ideas with us and, um, uh, you know, deserve some recognition too. So I just want to make mention of that. Uh, there's a whole bunch of people behind these ideas. It's just not me and or Rick Smyre. <clears throat> Uh, sitting around doing this stuff. Um, so, I, you know, and the other thing I wanted to say that, you know, uh, 
there was a quote that I saw, and I, I think it might even be in the book, but uh, Peter Drucker said that every couple hundred years in Western history, there's been a sharp transformation uh, within Western civilization. And all of a sudden, uh, things change really quickly. And I think the, the gist of it is that, you know, our basic values, our social and political structure, our arts, the, you know, all the key institutions that make up um, our uh, civilization kind of rearrange uh, themselves. And, we, I, you know, Rick and I believe that we're in that same kind of time right now. We, we kind of call it uh, a second enlightenment. Uh, you know, the, the first enlightenment happened in Scotland and, you know, happened 200 years ago. The ideas, you know, that came out of particularly the University of Glasgow, they took a long time to fully get incorporated um, uh, throughout, you know, society. Um, it was fantastic. It was a lot. It was a, it was a sort of fantastic time in Western history because you had you certainly had the University of Edinburgh uh, taking uh, understanding the emerging trends and how thing how Western civilization was moving out of um, uh, the, the was moving out of the Renaissance and you know out of the uh, the the traditional controlling worldview that the Catholic Church had. And all of a sudden you had some smart people at the university, but you also had a lot of people um, at the grassroots level, different kind of leaders. We, 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 it caused people to rethink governance and you know, how communities were organized. But um, uh, over the course of the next hundred years, we saw a big shift. And People went from relying, you know, on another institution telling them what they needed to believe, you know, about afterlife, about, you know, government, you know, uh, the way communities were organized. And the shift uh, was pretty profound. And um, it changed the way fr it changed the way all the, that people thought about what the role that they could play in their own communities and their own lives. So they began demanding for more democracy. And so obviously we had the, you know, we had the, the movements happening um, here in the United States and, 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 and France and all the other places that went through that first dem uh, democratization wave. All of those things could be traced out of the, the, the first enlightenment. And, and quite frankly, what's also interesting um, is that the grassroots piece that I mentioned a second ago was really interesting because people, particularly men, uh, were probably you know, entirely men uh, and white men, obviously, uh, began to organize and get together in bars and taverns and started to talk about these ideas. And so each, you know, each bar and tavern, uh, first in Scotland and then the ideas spread throughout the U.K., uh, each of those places could be um, seen as kind of a separate node. And, uh, and over the course of time, those ideas, particularly as folks emigrated uh, later on to the United States, uh, it helped spark a lot of the changes that we're, uh, that we're experiencing now. So anyhow, so Peter Drucker, you know, you know was a really big influence on, you know, not only me, but I think a lot of uh, public and private leaders um, all over the place. But uh, I want to make note that, uh, you know, he said that this is something to kind of expect. But this is 
we're entering into something completely new because we're shifting from a world where uh, the Enlightenment taught, taught us to be independent and uh, that we could do it ourselves. Uh, and that was a, a great a great value because before, you know, we were told that, you know, let the, the church will take care of us, the king will take care of us. Well, the shift now that we're seeing uh, is that we're actually interdependent. Um, and we depend on not only, uh, you know, our, our colleagues, but our neighbors. We depend on, uh, you know, society in really integral and integrated ways. And we can't do it ourselves. And so old-style leadership, traditional leadership, uh, are often, and I found this quite, you know, quite often in, in, uh, in uh, municipal governments, traditional leadership often wants to solve really tough problems by reusing old ideas that didn't work in the first place. And uh, I'll uh, give one short example of myself. I worked for a mayor, and uh, we wanted to look at how we did zoning, how we did public safety, and uh, a couple other sort of that were big issues during the campaign. So I went around the country and uh, spent some time with a, uh, about eight or nine different mayors and their staff, kind of shadowing them, looking at what they were doing. And uh, what I found, uh, there were a lot of fantastic ideas that I learned. There was definitely a lot of things I learned. But really what I walked away with was the things that seemed to be working in those other cities that weren't working in the District of Columbia uh, wouldn't apply to what we're doing here in uh, Washington, D.C. So, um, you know, in order, in order to really make district government, you know, Washington, D.C. government, a 21st century organization, my uh, big idea when I came back is that, well, quite frankly, we need to use the context of these other places, uh, you know, that we know what they did, but it's got to be something new. And so across government, uh, we, we used the, this best practice tour that I went on as context, but uh, we challenged all the agency directors to, um, to look at something, uh, try something different and experiment, and we tried to create as much as we could um, uh, an environment where people were allowed to experiment and quite frankly maybe fail a little bit as long as it didn't cost too much money um, you know, or somebody's life or anything. But we, allowed, we, wanted, to, we wanted to try to push we wanted to we wanted to create a tension within uh, agency directors across district government on how to kind of test new ideas out and and feel safe about that and that's that's the other shift that's happening particularly in in public management and transformational leadership is um you've got to be allowed to uh prototype some things and be able to uh, feel safe about doing that and also being allowed to look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what, that wasn't a good idea. I didn't do that right or our team didn't do that right and we've got to, you know, we've got to, we've got to fix this. So um, that's what, uh, kind of what I will say about that. Yeah. So as we, as we, um, we, you know, we're kind of heading into a break pretty soon, but I want to, I want to just dwell for a moment on on the idea that the traditional thinking doesn't work and I know that um, the traditional thinking is typically people thinking well you know what makes sense what's practical or you know we better be conservative so that we can protect what we have you know or 
I think the third one that you write about is let's decide what we want in the future and plan for it, you know, as if we can forecast the future. Right. And, you know, you, you write about why, why these approaches don't, um, don't actually work. And it sounds like from the example you just gave that, um, that, that there needs to be more experimentation and more openness to uh, what would work in our context versus just what are the go-to solutions that everybody thinks of. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. There's, uh, There's this shift, uh, you know, the other, this sort of transformational age that we're living in, whatever we want to call it, whether it's a second enlightenment or, you know, the, you know whatever, um, the shift that we're making is um, what, we're, what Rick Smyre and I are talking about is not that, that there's just one, there's a new, that there's going to be a whole new way of doing things. It's actually going to be appropriate sometimes to do traditional leadership, particularly if you know that, um, uh, you know, what the, what the, the, the concrete objectives are and what the, um, goals are and you know you've got a, 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 a dam that's broken you've got to react you've got to react very quickly and make quick decisions and so you need you know you need leaders like Churchill who probably a lot of us you know consider the epitome of, of a really strong leader and uh, he stood you know alone against the whole Nazi onslaught and did uh, made some incredible decisions that quite frankly weren't very popular but one of the things that, you know, the, the difference between Churchill is he had uh, a really defined enemy. He really understood his resources. He understood his objectives. And uh, they were very well defined. Now, at a moment in time, we needed a Churchill. But for problems that, uh, you know, for issues and challenges that we're facing globally from, uh, you know, environmental uh degradation, to the loss of faith, faith in government, to uh, even challenge it around health care, which is a little bit more concrete. We need, it's not going to, we're not going to need leaders as much like a Churchill, as much as we're going to need leaders who are willing to dialogue and learn uh, and, and co-learn with a group of colleagues uh, to experiment with things because there's no set answer. And so if we go back to the past to try to figure out how to fix the environment or, figure, or, or fix the public's lack, lack of faith in government, we're not going to get very far. We didn't, we're not very far now because I don't think we've used um, trends very well. We haven't, we haven't understood trends very well, that is. And we don't use uh, what we call in the book futures generative dialogue, which is it's not only about ac accepting someone's um, ideas, but taking them and taking another step with them and, and creating something that never existed before because the two minds uh, connected. Okay. Well, that, that was a complete answer. And we're going to take a break right now. When we come back after the break, I'd like to go back to this second enlightenment and really understand more. Um, my guest is Neil Richardson. I'm Kate Ebner, and you're listening to Inside Transformational Leadership. We'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, research, and education about the nature and requirements of leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop and sustain worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches dedicated to awakening, engaging, and supporting the leadership required in the world today to create a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer four cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching, the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership, the Certificate in Health Coaching, and the Certificate in Facilitation. We also offer a range of ICF-certified advanced coach education and leadership courses for experienced leadership coaches and leaders at all levels. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email ITLprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership. Produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host. Welcome back. I'm Kate Ebner. My guest is Neil Richardson, and we're talking actually about rethinking the future. Um, Before the break, um, Neil was really helping us understand that um, we are entering uh, the second age of enlightenment and or the, there is a second enlightenment that's uh, beginning and we want to dedicate some time to that right now and for those who are listening i'm curious about how this seems to you as you listen you know does this reflect some of what you're experiencing but perhaps didn't put a name to um, everybody knows the future will be different from the past it always is um, but we're also beginning to understand that there's a different kind of future coming our way, a different kind of future that's requiring new principles to operate. And uh, Neil, you made the direct link between um, the second enlightenment and the first enlightenment and and talked with us about some of those changes. Could you tell us more about the second enlightenment? What does it look like? Well, it looks looks bright and it looks fun in most ways, but there's going to be, you know, we're going to go through a, a period that, you know, I think a lot of us are experiencing called a a disruption. And uh, I think, you know, you could probably describe any profound transformation as kind of disruption because we're going from one way of doing things to a new way. But um, I think if we can get this right, I think that if we can uh, begin to think more 
transformationally, if you will. Um, I think that as leaders, you know, whether you're in the public sector or the private sector, a community leader at sort of any level, I think that, uh, you know, if we can get a critical mass of, of 10 to 20 percent uh, really operating and uh, differently and thinking about the world differently, I think we're I think we're going to have a, a bright future. You know, the, and the other thing I wanted to mention a lot, it took me a while to accept futurism. I kept thinking when people said, oh, you're a futurist, I would say, uh, well, I'm not just exactly H.G. Wells predicting flying cars and, and things like that. So I almost resisted that for a long time. And it's more about foresight and about using trends and weak signals to understand um, what, what's happening. And I always try to, at some point when I talk to people, to get that distinction because a lot of people think, well, why don't you tell me what's going to happen in the stock market? You know, and I'll say, well, I can't really tell you what happens going to happen in the stock market because I'd, I'd be doing that. I'd be modeling that, you know, if I knew. Mm-hmm. But uh, some of the thing, you know, some of the what Rick and I call sort of the kind of the living system concepts for the second enlightenment. So we're going through this shift. So uh, the first enlightenment, you know, or just the enlightenment, uh, that was a moment in time where Western civilization left the uh, the authority in many ways of, of the church, and they began to take a step forward, and they created a lot of um, independence, uh, where, um, you, and it's quite frankly, a lot of the values, the way our country was set up, where you pulled yourselves up by the bootstrap, and uh, you know, you kind of acted out of, of self-interest and linear thinking and static structures where um, you could uh, you could predict when a when a uh, you know when the crops were coming in and they were very predictable and you could plan your whole life around them. Well, we, now we know that uh, the world's not like that anymore. Not much like that. Certainly not the United States and. No matter who wins this presidential election, and you know, I think both candidates, particularly one candidate, is talking a lot about bringing manufacturing back. Manufacturing's not coming back. It's for the United States. It it it's gone, and uh, which is fine because we're going to have uh, a whole lot more opportunities in in the emerging economy. In our book, we call it the the creative molecular economy, but. We've that you know that you know that ships you know kind of left the uh, you know left the dock, but uh, when we when we talk about the second enlightenment, you know we've we've got um, this understanding and this notion uh, that uh, we're working together as teams. Uh, we're much more into you know interdependent. Uh, there's a whole notion of helping each other succeed. This and this goes back to the things that I learned. Uh, you know, on a soccer field and playing in sports. Uh, and quite frankly, most of the great things I've ever done has been part of working together collaboratively. Um, we, uh, the other, the other, the other uh, sensibilities that we notice in the second enlightenment is that we're going from a shift from uh, thinking about the world in the sense of physics goes, and it kind of goes back to the to static structures where everything's predictable, it's linear and hierarchical, and we're uh, moving into a world that's probably based much more on biological principles that are much more organic, um, that are self-organizing, uh, that are innovative, and uh, that is requiring all of us 
to become a you know if we want to succeed different kind of leaders different kind of of people you know from being parents to citizens and and you know if we if we look at this i mean you've done such a beautiful job um in in your book outlining the contrast so for example if as you said a moment ago in the first enlightenment self-interest was the paradigm the second enlightenment it's helping each other succeed you know or in the first enlightenment if we were uh, looking at uh, the world in terms of static structures as you've been describing in the second enlightenment we're really thinking and operating in terms of um of modules webs and networks which you've referred to um you know the taking of meaning from materialism and from sort of the accrual of of uh, wealth or, or goods um, uh, in the first enlightenment transformed into taking meaning from creativity and spirituality or spiritualism um, competition transformed to collaboration um, debate transformed to dialogue you know so I'm giving just a few of these amazing um, shifts that you're calling out and I think um, you know you, you just mentioned a moment ago that collaboration is how you see things really getting done and I know you do that a lot in your work. You really work in a collaborative way. Could you say a little bit about um, the mindset of collaboration, perhaps versus the mindset of competition? That's a good, that's a good question. Thank you for that. Um, well, you know, when I, I'm going to go back to, I guess, I guess the story. Um, when I... When I first began working, uh, I worked with a lot of people who um, were extremely competitive, uh, were extremely certain about what they wanted to do. And uh, I was even working in, in one place that uh, was working on public issues, uh, and we had a very strong founder. Um, and we talked about networks, and we talked about working together, yet uh, within the organization itself, we didn't always model those things that, um, uh, that we talked about when we were uh, giving speeches or doing work across the country. Uh, later on, I found the same thing working in uh, municipalities. Uh, there was... Um, a lot of jockeying for position. There was a lot of I want to do this and get credit for it. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to be the top dog. I wanted to get the promotion. And uh, you know, if you're working in if you're working in a factory in the 1950s or 60s or you know the 1920s, whenever you want to date it, uh, if you worked harder and you uh, put more lids on a can than anybody else. Well, then you'd usually get, you know, you can get a, you know, you should probably deserve a promotion at that point. But most of us don't work in a factory and we don't work on an assembly line. And most of the ideas that we're working on, again, relate to working well, working uh, together. And so um, one of the things that uh, I've taken and adapted from not only the, my personal methods of leadership, but I've, I've always been a real advocate for collaboration at the, gover at the governmental level. So I've been part of uh, large strategic planning processes that allowed 
the public, you know, the, the, from the ground up to get as much of a voice as they could in sort of making decisions, you know, around budget issues or around uh, real specific topical issues, you know, like uh, a, a crime issue in a neighborhood, because those ideas were usually best and created some buy-in uh, from local, from, uh, you know, from the people on the ground there. And so the, the, the collaboration mindset um, is something that where people love it when they experience it, but they don't experience it very often, and most of us don't do it very well. And I, I think particularly now we're living, you know, we've got this tension going on in our society, and it comes all the way down to communities. We don't exactly know who to trust. Uh, we don't, you know, we're no longer trustful of our, you know, of our large um, institutions. Um, you know, we've seen a, a presidential election, an election season that's, that's you know, once again divided us. Um, and made us wonder who our neighbors are and what they believe in. And uh, I think we've got to get better at uh, working on collaborating, uh, helping people, and this is where you know, transformative uh, leadership comes in, helping uh, people at all levels see that they've got an opportunity uh, to do better for themselves by working better with someone else. Because, you know, at, 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 the, at the end of the day, and I, you know, if you can help each other succeed, uh, you know, rather than just rather than just uh, trying to make yourself succeed, and uh, you know, I think the more the more you can get uh, your team involved, and your community, and your your family involved in in success, the better everything will be. Yeah, you know, that's very well said, and I I think the um, you know the idea of getting people involved and of doing it together, you know, and having it be, um, you know, involved enough that there's a set of mutual values and common ground that people are willing to work for. I've, I've seen in the work that I do that collaboration can actually be very difficult, you know, because we have to move past, you know, personal interest or organizational interest into a new ground where we're actually operating together towards something that benefits us both, but isn't, um, it isn't about sort of, um, cooperating for a benefit. It's actually about really co-creating and working much differently mm -hmm. together. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, as you consider, um, the, the work you do, what gives you hope when you're working in, in government, you know, what do you see that you think is helpful? Well, um, I think you know, it, it, you know, if we're talking about the fed, if we're talking about the federal government, what I see hopeful is that uh, there's a lot of there's a there's a lot of folks getting ready to retire, and there's nothing wrong with uh, with seniors, and we need a lot of wisdom and experience uh, and you know, across the federal government. But what I'm really excited is going to be a retirement boom uh, in the next few years, and it's going to create an opportunity for uh, a whole new generation of people to come in and do really good government work and and hopefully break down some of the silos that we see uh, at, in the federal government and in governments of all sizes. 
so at the federal government level, that's the exciting thing is I think we're going to get a new generation of, of people thinking about things in a different way. And, you know, you know, millennials, whether, you know, whatever you think about the, that rising generation, I, what I love about millennials is the curiosity that many of them have. And of course, I'm generalizing, but uh, the curiosity, um, they're willing to uh, experiment and fail and get up again and, and do it a different way. I think that's going to, I think that across district, uh, across the federal government, it's going to be, um, it's going to be fantastic. It's, it's going to be, it's, it's going to lead to some opportunities for the president um, and the, and a lot of the federal agencies to do better work at the uh, at in municipal government you know it's, it's partly the same thing I think in city governments and municipal governments at all levels I think that it's a combination of you're we're going to get the the bump with the new leaders and they're much more comfortable thinking systemically than perhaps their their parents were uh, but I think at the municipal level where we're going to see a big um, uh, increase in the quality of services we get is through better use of technology, um, crowdsourcing, uh, things like that. Uh, we can cities are beginning to understand that they can, you know, just you know, getting data from Waze, for example, they're really getting an understanding of how to use, how to direct traffic flows, which goes down to how they're going to time their lights um, at traffic stops, you know, or where they're going to put bus routes. So. Creating smart cities is one of the is one of the things that I think we can look forward to in the in the future at that level. I, I think that's a that's a great point, and you know we only have just one minute before another break um, again, Neil. But what tell us what a smart city is? Well, a smart, a, a smart city is a city that uh, allows, in my mind, it allows for the public to actually get their views. Uh, heard and incorporated and works with every part of the community. So it's not a bunch of experts, whether it's the, you know, it's, it's a mayor and a, and a city council at the top, you know, whether it's the chamber of commerce, a smart city is one that works with, within and creates a lot of diversity and, and big decision-making that translates all the way down and up uh, from the, from the, you know, from the, the from the street level, all the way up to the to the, the city hall. Well, thank you, thank you for that. And it, it it's um, you know as you were describing it, I could instantly grasp the the web, you know, the network of inputs and decision makers that you were describing in, in our first segment. So when we come back from this break. I'd love to 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 talk even more about how does this um, transformed second enlightenment world work. And, and how can we think about leadership in that context? Um, we'll be right back after the break. You're listening to Inside Transformational Leadership coming from the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, research, and education about the nature and requirements of leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop and sustain worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches dedicated to awakening, engaging, and supporting the leadership required in the world today to create a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer four cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching, the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership, the Certificate in Health Coaching, and the Certificate in Facilitation. We also offer a range of ICF-certified advanced coach education and leadership courses for experienced leadership coaches and leaders at all levels. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email ITLprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host. Welcome back. We're in our our final segment of this uh, fascinating conversation with Neil Richardson. You know, whether he's reading, leading roundtable discussions in low-income wards in the District of Columbia or presenting research at conferences, Neil's expertise and compassion are always evident. Um, we're really glad to have you on the show today, Neil. And before we were um, taking a break there, we were talking about smart cities, and, and, and I, I commented that I can really begin to see through our conversation um, what it will be like to lead actually, when you have so many kinds of input informing decisions, you have so many ways to bring people together. And I want to pick up there and talk for a moment about, um, you know, this, this dynamic of collaboration and of um, lots of places to go to get information, you know, supported by technology. I'm really curious about how does a leader operate um, in this new second enlightenment? Well, uh, they act uh, with a lot of humility because, uh, uh, you know, if, if you're really going to – if you're really – if you're going to be out there and pretend that uh, as a leader you know all the answers to anything, um, you're going to have uh, – you're going to have your uh, your butt uh, <laughs> handed to you pretty pretty quickly, um, particularly when you're working on uh, really, really tough issues. Um you know, again, these sometimes, and again, if there's a, a really fixed outcome, you need to get, uh, you know, 20 bus stops, uh, you know, uh, put into place uh, in your community. 
you know, that's, uh, you know, that's, those, are, those are skills and objectives and things that are just fine for their traditional leadership. But if you're trying to understand where your city is going to expand over the next 10 years and figure out where those bus stops are going to go in a part of the city that hasn't been created yet, it takes a different kind of mindset. Uh, we call those uh, uh, weak signals, but they're, they're kind of early trends. And uh, so, you know, in, in that case, where the bus, where the bus uh, st- stops are going to go, you know, you take a look at, you know, obviously where, you know, real estate is moving, um, where maybe the, already the Department of Transportation is thinking about putting down roads. There's all kinds of indicators uh, about how a city is going to grow and expand. And um, I think this, the notion of uh, understanding how to use trends uh, is one of the most critical things that any kind of leader can do. And, it's, and again, it's not about trying to predict things. It's about noticing a variety of options that are, uh, you know, that to, it's about under, it's about really understanding how, And how uh, a it's how an issue is going to become uh, it's how it's going to emerge in kind of a self-organized way. But again, it's coming from these trends and really understanding how to use trends, right? Not as predict predictors for 100% rationale, you know. Uh, but it's it's about understanding how uh, there might be 10 or 15 different uh, trends that can make you know, uh, a mayor decide where to put the next neighborhood. Hmm. So, so from a leadership perspective, that mayor or that leader needs to be able to understand, um, what are we seeing, right? What does it mean? And of all the things we're understand, you know, of all the trends we're considering, which ones are the ones that should determine, uh, should, should help us determine what we're going to do. And so there's a, to me, as I think about that, there's a, a, an ability needed to ask the right questions, to consider things with fresh eyes um, so that you're not just always seeing the same old thing, even when there's something happening differently. Um, and then the ability to bring people with you in a conversation that ultimately leads to um, good and, and, and well-informed kind of different decision-making. Um, I wonder, you know, you and I have, talked a lot about um, the, 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 I guess, the conditions of change that are present. And I, I wonder about, um, that you write extensively in your book about dialogue and about the need for people to be able to really have conversations that are probably more complex, more nuanced, um, more at stake, you know, but we need to get good at this. Could you say a little bit, Neil, about uh, the importance of dialogue? Yeah, Absolutely. So, and I think that this is an important issue to talk about and a, and a skill that every single leader and person in this country and, quite frankly, the world needs to be able to um, embrace and get really good at. You know, so, um, you know, and the way, the, the way that uh, Rick Smyre and I think about this is there's sort of three kinds of ways you can have a, you know, a discussion. You know, you can, you can debate. And, uh, you know, I think 
a lot of people, particularly a lot of traditional leaders, are really good at debating and they can win an argument. But what we have found, you know, when you look at the United States Congress, um, each side is sort of talking to each other, uh, you know, within themselves. They're not talking to the other to the other side, and so they believe they've won a debate or something, but they've created a real big loser. And uh, the loser doesn't want to participate. And so you have, you know, in the case of the Congress or, quite frankly, the way we talk to each other and act uh, in the United States together is that, okay, well, my my person didn't win, so I'm going to sit this thing out for four years or eight years and not participate. So that's the – so that – the whole notion of debate uh, and having, uh, you know, using your knowledge and uh, insight to to win – to win a, a conversation, uh, that was great. But one of the things that we've seen a shift of, and it's I think beginning in the 1960s, uh, you know, the whole notion of, of, of dialogue. So I think we started to see that, okay, well, maybe winning, winning every argument uh, uh, at the expense of the other person, maybe, maybe that doesn't work so well. Maybe we need to have a, something where we can dialogue and hear the other person, accept their views, and have a lot of empathy. So, you know, that's that's a fantastic notion. But what we don't get to with that is we're having empathy for the person, but we're not truly creating a situation where it's win-win for everyone. It's more that, okay, I'm going to accept those, those views. I don't really quite understand them, but we're going to talk about it and, um, you know, maybe we'll maybe we'll be able to create something that uh, we can both live with and, and accept. Well, one of the ideas in our book that most people ask about and we do some uh, trainings about is this thing called futures generative dialogue, and that's a that's that's a a, a practice where you get you get a you get a group of people together or two people. And you have a dialogue and you figure out where everybody is uh, and you go beyond just accepting the, the other person's ideas and you, you deeply incorporate them, uh, you know, into yourself, into your, into your, into your brain. And, but that's just the very beginning. That's just the context. The whole idea of futures generative dialogue and what we uh, recommend for communities and organizations looking to transform is to start out with both, uh, you know, with, with all, all the smart people, all the great perspectives. Nobody's all wrong, no matter who they are. They're, no one's 100% wrong all the time. Accept those things, but then create some new ideas and figure out where the access points are between people coming from different perspectives and creating something completely new. And so in a futures generative dialogue, you come out of a meeting in a completely different space uh, with a completely different solution that uh, 99% of the time probably couldn't have been developed uh, just by a single person. So uh, I think this, uh, the, the notion of this futures generative dialogue is something that we've got to get to uh, at every level of government, at every level of community organization, at every level of, uh, of, of business. We've got to figure out how to ask appropriate questions um, and create something completely new um, that actually creates uh, an opportunity for a real uh, permanent solution or a permanent solution until the next challenge comes down the road.
Well, that's, that's, I think, I think that sounds so smart. And, you know, it's interesting, even as we're talking today, we have a, a futures generative dialogue going on um, in this building, actually, about our institute. And uh, 40 people come to have come together to think collaboratively and generatively about the future and some aspects of our institute. So it's kind of um, exciting, actually, to to give it this name and <laughs> to be discussing it mm-hmm. with you while that's happening. Um, I want to ask you one more thing. We only have four more minutes in the show, but very quickly, you talk about the need for master capacity builders for community transformation. Um, and I love this because I think this is an invitation to people listening to the show to uh, adopt or assume a new identity, a master capacity builder. What is that? Well, you know, a master capacity is literally a set of skills that allow uh, a transformational leader to bring their team and forward. And uh, uh, a master capacity, these master capacities, uh, quite frankly, begin with futures generative dialogue because it quite frankly, starts with the way that we ask questions and the way that we hear questions. But until we, until we um, really embrace what the, you know, what the, what this emerging world, what the, you know, what we're calling for a world that doesn't exist yet, but it's beginning to exist yet, um, we've got to have these capacities that, um, you know, where leaders consider the long-term effect, you know, they just don't take a rash action, you know, or they, they understand how to uh, anticipate scenarios that, that are emerging, um, how we allow self-organizing uh, groups of people that we're working with to come together and try to solve issues rather than trying to plan it from the top down. Um, uh, you know, I think master capacity leaders uh, – really understand a systemic world or a holistic world uh, where you see all the more connections, you know, the more connections that you uh, can understand and see, the better you are. So, you know, maybe, maybe 40 years ago, you know, the, you know, might be the, the wealthiest person. And there's still a lot of people out there, you know, who's got the biggest bank account um, is the most successful. I would say, you know, uh, you know, now, now, and increasingly in the future, the people who see networks everywhere and can make the most connections are going to be the ones that are most successful, and uh, that's one of the key uh, master capacities. Um, and one thing that doesn't get talked about enough is uh, is particularly with with leaders and you, you know. You know, any leader that's in public leadership now is under a lot of stress. You've got to have patience, uh, particularly if you're trying to create leadership skills that are different than what a lot of people learn coming out of grad school. Um, the leader's got to model uh, these master capacities. They've got to be patient uh, with the people that they're working with. And sometimes, as I said in the beginning, you've got to go underground and do these things, you know, kind of in a Trojan horse idea and just begin doing them because they will face uh, – some ideas will face resistance. Um, so you've got to – you've got to be – you know, the leader's got to be very adaptive because even though you may be able to make – you know, you've got the most authority, um, if you can't inspire enough confidence, you actually know what you're talking about. Uh, with your team, you're gonna, you're gonna, you know, you may still make the decisions, but you're actually gonna lose the, lose the, the intrinsic trust that you've got on your team, and so yeah. sometimes that's gonna cause the leader 
to uh, uh, approach problem solving in a different way. And maybe you don't even call them master capacities like we do in the book, but you call them, you know, you just start doing it, you call it something else. Yes, I think as I as I read the book and understand the concept, I call it transformational leadership. So I'm delighted yeah. with the concept. And you know, we're at the end of our our hour as I as we thought it would. It did go very quickly. Um, there's so much ground to cover with this way of understanding the the future. And I would invite anyone listening to go ahead and pick up a copy of Preparing for a World That Doesn't Exist Yet um, by uh, Rick Smyer and Neil Richardson. Our guest today has been Neil Richardson. And Neil, thank you so much. This has been a very informative hour. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week.